Well, good morning. All right, everybody's awake. Uh, my name is Andy, and I love being a dad. I feel like I'm an AA when I say that, but I do. I love, I love being a dad. Um, it's a great thing. I've got two little boys, a five-year-old named Noah and a seven-year-old named Caleb, and I love being their dad, especially in this season right now. I'm sure if you're a parent, you would say that every season is like roses and rainbows, right? But right now, this season is a lot of fun because my kids are learning a lot, uh, especially Caleb. He's learning some really significant things. Uh, he's in the last year or two years, he's learned uh, both how to ride a bike and how to read. Um, those are like two really big milestones for little kids as they you know, gain their independence and as they're able to have a sure footing for education moving forward by reading. Um, but as we're teaching Caleb how to read, um, I've earned a lot of respect for teachers um, who spend a lot of time teaching kids how to read. There's actually a lot of technique and things that go into it. And so uh, as I'm learning from the teacher how to teach my son how to read, uh, it's led to um, some uh, frustration between the two of us. Um, and it's led to multiple moments where Caleb or I will stand up and leave the room because we know that we're too upset. To continue reading, it's a little too much. Um, it's me that leaves the room, but uh, it's really, it's just been really curious to me and interesting watching all the difficulty of teaching someone something uh, that is really difficult if you've never done it before. It's really hard to learn how to read. But one of the significant things about Caleb um, is I love that he continues to come back. He comes back to the bed and sits down next to me and we still read. Um, I come back to the uh, bed and sit down and we keep reading and I think Caleb keeps coming back because he really wants to learn how to read. He really has this desire uh, to move forward and know how to read. And so as he and I uh, work on that, he keeps coming back to me because I know how to read. Um, I think it, that made me think a lot as I was helping Caleb read the other day and preparing for the sermon. It made me think about how people in the DMV really are incredible people. Um, before I moved here, I just didn't know how incredible people were here in the DMV. You know, you hear all these terrible things about people who live in DC and, you know, all these negative stereotypes, but really, truly, my neighbor really, I know, and folks in this room are really have huge, generous hearts and really want to change the world. I think that's why most of us are here uh, in the DC area. Uh, we want to do things like rid the world of poverty, racism, famine, and we're all doing, we're all taking different routes to accomplish that. Um, but for most of us, um, there's a belief that if we just get the right people in the right places, usually that's government or usually that's the right policies in place, that if we can do that, we can move forward the gospel agenda and we can help God accomplish what he's been trying to do all along, which is to save the world, right? And so we begin to believe that if we can just get the right people in the right places, it will impact the change that we're looking for. But if you look back on history, if there's any history majors in here, you look back on history and you know that over the history of our uh, world and our nation even, uh, government and even people have not impacted a significant enough change, right? You look at places, you know, you would think that with the right amount of money that you could accomplish anything um, and with the right amount of people in the right place, but it's not happening. So I believe that we need a different method. If you were going to figure out how to fix an iPhone, you would have gone to Steve Jobs. If you were going to figure out how to fix uh, the amazing internet, you would go to Al Gore. <laughs> if, uh, if you were trying to figure out, it makes sense to me, how to fix humanity's crisis, um, you would go to the creator. You would go to the one who made humanity. 
and that we would go back to God to figure it out. Because the truth of the matter is that Jesus did change the world, and he continues to change the world. He just did it through a drastically different strategy. So today we're going to take a look. Um, if you want to open up your Bible, I believe it's page 748. Um, we're going to look in John chapter 11. And while you get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, history of kind of where we are in Jesus' story here. John uh, is always the gospel that I recommend people read uh, as the first. If you're new to the Bible, it's a great place to start. It tells you Jesus' story in a uh, common vernacular and in kind of, I think, kind of like a romantic uh, way that's fun to read and very engaging. Um, it's really a great story. So in the book of John, um, we've been studying uh, the seven declarative statements that Jesus makes when he says, I am. He says that seven times throughout John, and they're all very significant things. And this week is our last one, and we're talking about when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So we're going to close up our series today with that. At this point in Jesus' ministry, um, in this story, in John chapter 11, Jesus is actually at the height of his worldly ministry. Um, he's at a place where throngs of people are following him everywhere he goes. Crowds are showing up. Um, people are knocking down doors and trying to get in to touch him and be near him and just hear him. He's got all these people following him because of what he says and what he does. He said a lot of really touchy things and a lot of really interesting things, a lot of very powerful words, like when he said that the only way to get to the Father, the only way to get to God, to heaven, is through me, Jesus said, right? And that's a very uh, strong phrase, right? And so people were following because of what he said, but they were also following him because of what he did. He did some really incredible miracles. I mean, helping people who couldn't walk be able to walk again, that's really significant, people who are paralyzed. But it's interesting, as I've studied, the most significant miracle, one of the most significant miracles that Jesus did that really gathered a lot of people to follow him was bringing sight to the blind. And I guess we take that for granted because we have surgeries now and we have glasses and it's not, it doesn't seem as miraculous. But back then, before Jesus, no priest, prophet, or king on earth had ever healed someone who was blind. And Jesus comes on the scene after having read the book of Isaiah out loud and saying, I have come to restore sight to the blind. I'm the Messiah. Then he goes and does it. And people are really shocked. And so there's throngs of people following him. Um, people everywhere are following Jesus at the height of his ministry. At this point in the story, um, I'm going to, I would encourage you to go home and, and read this whole story, but we're just going to kind of jump through it because it's a long story. Um, Jesus, in the very beginning of the story, he gets word that one of his best friends, Lazarus, is sick and dying, but he's on the verge of death. Now, it actually says in the passage that Jesus loved Lazarus. It doesn't say that about a whole lot of people, that Jesus specifically loved this person. And so it's very, we know that Jesus really cared about Lazarus. He was a close, close friend. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, were also close friends of Jesus. So he gets this request, come see your friend, your, one of your best friends who's sick and who's dying. And he was in the town of, Ju Jesus, Jesus was in Jerusalem at this point, and um, Lazarus is over in Judea, and they're saying, come, come see him. At this point, I want to pause in the story and talk about the name Lazarus. The name Lazarus is from the Hebrew Eleazar, and it means God help us. So from the very beginning of the story, we see the people crying out to God saying, please help us. We need help. And a lot of times I look around at our society or at the world or you look at news. Uh, when we went to Greece, you look at all of the tragedy and 
things happening. And I think that, God help us, you know, like we clearly are not able to do this on our own. God, please come and help us. And so the name Lazarus means that. Jesus is here and he's been asked a favor by someone who's close to him. Three times in scripture, Jesus is asked for a favor by someone close to him. And I don't know about you all, but when someone who's close to me asks me for a favor, I try to do it, right? Jesus has the same reaction every time. He does not do the favor that they ask. And that's kind of shocking because Lazarus was really good friends with Jesus. And Jesus had a lot of power, right? I mean, he was able to heal people. So you would think that in this scenario, easy, right? Jesus, even before this in the book of John, Jesus has healed people without being there. He just says a word and it's done. Jesus didn't even have to get up. But Jesus chooses not to every time when he's asked a favor of someone close to him, he chooses to not do it right then. But eventually he does do the favor. Um, And I believe that there's a reason for that, that Jesus is teaching us that his timing is perfect, that God's timing makes sense, that God's timing has all of these benefits that we in our little like uh, bubble that we live in can't see this huge view that God has. And he's teaching us how to lay down our rights, our right to know, our right to understand, our right to uh, you know, know what's going to happen. He's also teaching us to be patient and to trust him. These are tough things to do, right? Um, but in this story, Jesus is teaching us this. And eventually, the answer isn't no. Jesus does what he's asked to do, but he does it in such a fashion that gives God so much glory that if he had done initially the way that people had asked him, it would have done just a little bit of glory. But then the way Jesus does it is perfect. His timing, uh, he knows what he's up to. So Jesus hangs around in Jerusalem for three days. Three days. Can you, like, that would be tough for me even to hang around for three days if I knew someone who was close to me was dying. I'd want to get there, right? You'd have this anxiety to get there. Well, Jesus hangs around for three days. And then after three days, the disciples are like, come on, let's, you know, shouldn't we go see Lazarus? Did you forget? You know? Um, so Jesus says to them in uh, chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says, um, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, disciples, I'm glad that I wasn't there. For now, you're really going to believe me. Come on, let's go see him. Right? This is right here. Jesus says, look, I want you all to believe wholeheartedly. I'm drawing you in. Jesus wants to do that. God is bringing us closer to him. And as he draws us into relationship, he's revealing more and more of himself to us. And it really is a beautiful thing. And so Jesus is doing that in this moment. He's like, come on, let's go see what happens. But before they take their first step to head back to Judea, the disciples remind him, hey, Jesus, I love when the disciples remind him of stuff, right? Because it's like, he is God. He remembers what you're saying. But they tried to look at him and they're like, hey, Jesus, remember last time we were in Judea, which wasn't too long ago, everyone tried to stone you to death. Probably shouldn't go back there. But they... Uh, But Jesus goes on this long answer and basically says, in my timing, I know what's happening. We're going to go and do it. I love at this point in the scripture in verse 16, Thomas, right? What do we all know Thomas as? Doubting Thomas, right? Poor Thomas, who after Jesus is resurrected later in this story, uh, Jesus appears and Thomas gets this bad rap because he's the one who says, let me put my fingers in your hand. Let me feel where you actually had these injuries. I want to know that it really is you, Jesus. So we call him Doubting Thomas. In this moment, though, Thomas is the one with the most amount of faith. Thomas says, all right, I don't care if they were going to stone you, Jesus. I'm going with you. 
And he says, and we will die with Jesus, right? So next time you think about Thomas, remember this story too. He was willing to lay down his life and he's setting for us an, ex- an example, right? As disciples of Jesus, we ought to be willing to lay down our right to life. We ought to be willing to go that far for the cause of Jesus. So they do. They hop up and they go to Judea. And when they get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. This is the fourth day that Lazarus has been in a tomb. It's significant to point out here that the Jewish tradition, the Jewish mystic tradition was that a spirit would hang around a tomb for three days, waiting for a chance, a little bit of breath or a little bit of something in the body where they could enter back in and, you know, live in this body again, right? So for three days, they're hovering around. But by the fourth day, people would have left the, the grave site because there's no chance. There's just no chance that he's coming back. This is when Jesus shows up because Jesus takes the times when we say there is no chance, there is no possibility, and he says, oh yes, there is. So here's Jesus, he comes in, and when he shows up on the scene in John chapter 11, verse 21, Martha, Lazarus's bro- uh, sister and close friend of Jesus, comes up to Jesus and says, hey, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Hello, we, uh, we sent word for you. It's been four days. If you had been here, he would not have died. But Martha goes on to say, but I know that even now God will give you, Jesus, whatever it is that you ask. In this moment of frustration, anger, sadness, loss, she still holds tight to the promises of God. She still knows that he's in control and his timing is perfect and she trusts that he is. So she goes and gets her sister Mary, right? Who was apparently too emotional or too something to come and see Jesus. It says in the story that she knew when Jesus showed up, but she chose to stay home. She couldn't even see Jesus. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I place myself in the story and I think maybe she was mad at him, right? Or maybe uh, she just didn't want to get out of bed. Sometimes we feel that way when we deal with loss. But Mary shows up and she says the same thing Martha says. If you were here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. And then Mary does something different from Martha. This is the same Mary and Martha that are in the story where uh, Mary washes Jesus' feet with her hair and Martha's the one in the kitchen and we always compare the two of them. Well, we see it's the same Mary here again who begins weeping in front of Jesus. She says, if you were here, you wouldn't have died. And then she just lets it all out right there in front of him. We know that her emotion was so significant um, that Jesus actually joins her in weeping. It actually says that he groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. That's like a real deep, serious emotion that Jesus is having there. Remember that the New Testament of the Bible was written in Greek, in the Greek language. And for the Greeks to say that Jesus, who the writer believes, John, believes is um, God, for him to say that our God had an emotion would have been a really big deal. Because to the Greeks, gods were not, they did not have emotion. They were rational and they were uh, based on thought. In fact, David Guzik, a a theologian, he writes this. He says, to the mind of the ancient Greek, the primary characteristic of God was apatheia. That's where we get apathetic from. Uh, The total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. The Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless and compassionless God. But that isn't the God of the Bible. That isn't the God who is really there. 
It isn't the God who is standing there with Mary and Martha weeping, is it? No, Jesus goes into that moment and he is raw and open. This is why our God is so amazing. He invites us into real relationship and he doesn't just stand there with a stark face while we bawl. No, he joins us in that moment and that's the beauty uh, of the invitation of Jesus. And then he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and does something miraculous. And in verse 41, it says, Then Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said this out loud for the sake of these people standing here so that they will believe that you, God, sent me. All along, Jesus is here. He's guiding uh, his followers into a deeper faith. He's bringing them further and further in and doing everything he can to illustrate to them that he is God and that he does care. He goes on, then Lazarus shouted, or then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were bound in grave cloths. His face was wrapped in head cloth. He walks out like a mummy. Um, and Jesus tells him, unwrap him and let him go. This is incredible. Someone who everyone knew was dead. Everyone had given up hope. In fact, earlier in the story, Martha says, don't open the grave. Jesus is going to stank in there because there's a dead body for four days. Don't open it up. Jesus says, I got this, open it up, and he exerts his complete power over death. As I was reading theologians on this, on this story and like all these commentaries, it was really cool that a couple of them actually said they believe that Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, because if Jesus had just looked at the tomb and said, come out, some believe that all of the dead would have rose, because Jesus has that much power. He has complete power over death. Not just one person, but over all of death. He has power over it. And so he says, Lazarus, just you, come on out here. This, of course, attracts throngs of people, right? More and more people show up. And later, in, just a, um, in the next chapter, is when Jesus goes back to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. And there are throngs, there are crowds of people waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, because Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Jesus conquered death, and so they welcomed him as a king. It's incredible. Um, it's, this, would lead, this act would then lead to Jesus' death um, and eventually his subsequent victory again over death with his own resurrection. Like, it's cool that he raised people from the dead, but he raised himself from the dead. Like, that's really incredible. And so Jesus illustrates again his complete utter power over death. We never hear what happens to Lazarus after this part of the story. He's never mentioned again. And uh, the only thing we do know is in the very beginning of the next chapter, it says that uh, they had it out to kill him. And so the Jews actually set upon him and, and were chasing him. They were hunting him. But we never hear what happens, if they got him, if they were successful. And I like to believe that God actually leaves it open-ended to show us that when we die and we are resurrected to new life, that this is only the beginning. There's no end. This is the beginning of our new life and of a forever with him. Jesus' decisive victories over death give us reason to no longer fear death. We have no reason to fear death. If you claim the name of Jesus, you have no reason to fear death. He has the power to resurrect and then to create life out of death. And that gives us, as humanity, a new shot at life. 
There's a lie that we believe that we started off this morning with, and it's that humanity can fix itself. If we just had more power, if we had the right people in government, if we, we could do it, we could fix it. When you think about the way that we attain power, though, we attain power through things like war or lying, through cheating other people, through using people for personal gain. These are all not things that any of us enjoy or like when we're doing it or having it done to us. It's not a positive thing, attaining power. But we continue to believe that if we just keep striving, if we try a little harder, a little longer, get a better degree, get a little more money, get further into D.C., Whatever we do, that we can eventually do it. We just got to keep trying. Satan's lies look really good. We, we eat them up. Satan's good at his job. He, uh, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, in the very beginning of the Bible, Satan goes to Eve and he tempts her in the garden with, you can be just like God. Just try this apple. You can be just like him. You will know things. And it's tempting. And what does she do? She eats it. And Adam eats it. And Man, mankind continues on that path of being lured in by Satan to believe that we can be gods, that we can exact world change, that we can save humanity on our own, that we can be like a god. We come to believe that we control our destiny and our future, that we can achieve world peace or prosperity. And all that does is it places the burden squarely on us, on our shoulders. And maybe you feel that weight. Maybe you're involved in a nonprofit or in the government or maybe neither, but you just love people and you're doing things to really enact change. And you feel oftentimes like, this is a huge burden. How am I going to change world poverty? How am I going to do anything about the Syrian refugee crisis? I can't do this. That huge burden that we feel. But God didn't want it to be like that. See, that burden makes us believe that okay, maybe we can't ever have enough power. <laughs> For heaven's sakes, look at the DMV, right? We, we have the most educated people in the world, the most money in the world, the, the greatest amount of power in the world. We have all of that. And still in my neighborhood, the police were there the other day, right? Still uh, up and down our streets, we have crime and we have children who aren't eating and we have all sorts of things happening in the most powerful place in the world. It's not accomplishing what we're trying to get to, guys. We need to change something else. When we believe this lie that we can enact the change, it leads to death, destruction, terror, pain, and suffering. It leads to hierarchy where we, put, uh, we decide randomly based on age or gender or um, you know, socioeconomics or citizenship to place ourselves above each other. That's not of God. We decide... Um, it, it also creates struggles in us where we believe that there's an inability, um, or not where we believe, but we actually live out this inability to cope with things, right? It's really difficult to cope with pain um, and to deal with loss. I mean, look at Hillary Clinton recently, right? In her, one of her speeches after losing, she said, I'd rather be at home with my dog in a book, right? It's tough. We don't know what to do alone without God. We don't know how to deal with um, grieving even. The institutions of power, government, and hierarchy aren't going to change the world. But the way of Jesus does bring change. It's just different. It's the opposite. It looks drastically different. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, in the midst of this story, he says to Martha, before he raises Lazarus, she, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life, and then he does it. Did you know that the, um, so the politics of Jesus are instituted at the cross. This is where it happens. Did you know that the word politic, um, I didn't know this. I looked up the word politic, and it actually means to seem sensible and judicious under the circumstances. So when you think about it that way, Jesus actually was politic while he was on the cross, right? Somehow he used words of um, affirmation and words of care and words of forgiveness while he was dying the most excruciating death on a cross. He was politic. Jesus' words on the cross were so significant and it began through the cross, Jesus' way of changing the world, which is through self-sacrifice and death. These become the institutions that Jesus uses to change the world. Drastically different than what we're used to. Self-sacrifice and death. This is the way that Jesus shakes the bedrock of the world, the way that he brings about massive change. The change that I think most of us really are looking for and hoping for. He calls us to die to ourselves, to be politic and not political, to die to what it is that we want, to, to give that over for the sake of others, to lay down our rights. I love this phrase. One of my friends said this to me this week. He said, we don't demand our rights. Instead, we gladly lay them down for the sake of others. This is what Jesus did, right? Jesus was the son of God. He is God. His right was to be king. His right was to be all that kingship comes with, right? It comes with the lavish, the good life, right? But he gave that up. In Ephesians, it says that he gave all of that up to become a man and to live on earth for you and for me. And if we are going to follow him, we got to follow him in all of it. And that means self-sacrifice and death are ways that we live in his kingdom. Co-suffering um, is another act that Jesus does. Suffering alongside people. When we're faced with suffering, we try to do what? Conquer it, right? We try to win. We try to beat it. We try to overcome it, right? Um, when it comes to living in the pain and suffering or trying to deal with it, it's kind of frowned upon, right? People tell you, suck it up, move on. Let's keep going. Just get over it, right? That's, but that's a lie. That's not what God tells us. I think that we have it backwards. We can't conquer suffering or death. That's God's job. And he's willing to do it if you will invite him in. Jesus calls us to instead live in the awkwardness of suffering, to be present among other people in community, and to learn how to trust him through that. And that's what this story is all about. He's teaching us to learn what's, what co-suffering looks like and how to uh, live a new life through him. At the cross, Jesus takes the instrument of torture and death and he flips it upside down and makes it something that probably some of you in here are wearing somewhere on you, on a necklace or something, right? Most of you, I don't think, would wear something around your neck that stands for torture and death, right? You're wearing it because Jesus took something that was terrible and made it amazing. Everyone across all the cultures, across the globe, look at the cross and they think of love and they think of life. That is amazing. So it does accomplish change. It is radical, um, if you will just believe. So before, the, before Jesus and his people, the natural way of the world was that the powerful would destroy the weak. And that was just the natural way of the world. And then usually the powerful would put a boot on their neck, right? Like it was just, that's the way of the world, the natural way of the world. But instead, 
uh, Jesus comes in and he ushers in this new way of life. And he brings about serious change through institutions like self-sacrifice and love. And those who have followed him are called into the same way of living. Today, Jesus is sitting on his throne. After he was resurrected from the dead, we know that he went to heaven and that he sat, is sitting on his throne. But I think a lot of us, even me for years, got this wrong where we believe that he's up there and he's ruling up there and that's really awesome. But what that does is that um, leaves out here on But what I believe is that Jesus is actually ruling here and he's reigning here on earth and his kingdom is present and among us and we get to be invited in and be a part of it. Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus replied, I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. I like the way Brian Zahn says it, uh, one of my favorite authors. He says, if we think the kingdom or government of God is still waiting in the wings then our political allegiance is given to one of the players on the stage. And Christianity becomes subservient to conventional political power. It becomes a chaplain to offer innocuous invocations, a lackey to hand out Christian voter guides. Whoa. If we don't believe that Jesus is on the throne today, if we don't believe that he is ruling and reigning in our presence now, then we're just going to continue to long for heaven while we ignore the earth around us. Citizens of heaven love our neighbors in tangible ways. We do what Jesus did in this story. We weep with our neighbors. We stand next to them. We don't stand in front of them and wag fingers. Uh, We stand next to them and we weep with them, just like Jesus did in this story. Last week was a tough week for our nation. No matter where you stand, it was a tough week for our country. And my neighborhood... uh, felt some drastic um, upheaval. Lots of my neighbors, the day after that Wednesday morning, um, at the bus stop, we have a really big bus stop, so there's about 20 to 30 families. So there's like 80 people at our bus stop. There's people everywhere. And we, Janet and I have come to know almost all of them, and we're standing there, and it was incredible to me. I woke up that morning, and yeah, I was a little shaken, but my firm insideness knew that God is still in control. And I watched as all of my neighbors were weeping. They were visibly shooken, like shaken, is that the word? They were, uh, they were all like, they were crying and they were upset and some people were yelling and other people, kids are running around yelling things they've never yelled before. It was just like utter chaos at my bus stop. And I was just looking around thinking, man, this is where we belong. This is where Christ needs to be in these moments, in these places, bringing hope to these people who don't have hope. Their hope is in the wrong thing. And, and our hope being in Christ, it was, we were able to be politic in that moment, right? We were able to have a clear head about ourselves and to recognize who really is in power, and that is Jesus, and to believe it at our core And we've been able to show our neighbors that. We've been offering to watch their kids so they can go out and have a date night and so that they can just be uh, and not have to worry about stuff for a night. We've got neighbors who the next morning actually moved. Um, I've got some kids on my street who are afraid for different reasons. Like, it is happening. If we're not out in our neighborhoods paying attention, regardless of where you are in politics, your neighbors are hurting. Maybe it's not about politics, but they need 
the Jesus in you, in, their, in your neighborhood, talking to them, showing them that it's okay and that Jesus is still on his throne just as much today as he was three weeks ago. I believe that Jesus is the antidote to humanity's love affair with power and with self. Jesus is the antidote. He is the one. He's the one who will enact world change. We don't get world change through democracy or through the republic or through any type of uh, government institution. Real, visceral change comes through the power of Jesus Christ, and I believe that fully. The kingdom of God is not one through the acquisition of more power. God's kingdom is coming through submission and sacrifice. It's coming by relinquishing our right, our power, our gifts, by living open-handed. It's coming through sacrificing our self-interest, through subverting the culture of false power, through turning the other cheek. This is where Jesus' change is coming through, and this is the kind of life uh, that we are invited into. He invites us, die to yourself. Give up all of this uh, desires and wants that you have. Give them over to the kingdom of God, and God wants to do something with them. God wants to take our abilities and our, uh, you know, everything about us. He wants to take it, and he wants to use it for his kingdom. And then, and, and the way he wants to do that is by resurrecting us to new life, to a new life filled with submitting to other people and sacrificing um, what we have. Guys, I serve, and many of you all have chosen to serve, the God of the living. It actually says, later on in the book of John, in John chapter 20, verse 38, it says, so he is the God of the living, not the dead. He is the God of the living. And if you want to have that resurrected new life and to live in that way, let me tell you how you do that. I believe that God is here today. I believe that he's in our midst and he's waiting arms wide open to accept you. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're up to. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are or how terrible life is. He stands like this for everyone. And he's welcoming us into his amazing kingdom. And I believe that the way we join him on mission is by believing that he is God, by wanting him as our king and by allowing him to be our savior. When you do that, when you come to that belief, you will naturally follow him, Jesus, into the waters of baptism. That's what Jesus did. He showed us by being baptized himself and then he told us to be baptized. So guys, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, if you want to have new life, if you want to experience real change, then I ask you, please come and talk to me or Aaron or Carrie or someone with a badge around their neck today. Don't wait. Talk to someone today about what this new life, what this resurrection that comes from Jesus looks like we would love to tell you more about it. Let's pray.